This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Well, it's terrific to see you all here this morning, and I repeat my welcome uh, uh, to the Shalom uh, Church, uh, part of the Korean Reformed uh, Church of Australia. It's great to have you here, brothers and sisters, meeting with us today. Um, but I want to begin by saying that uh, we're continuing on our series in 1 Corinthians. We're in the passage that we just heard read for us, and it'd be great if you could have it open in front of you. That's page 934, I think, by memory, our 1 Corinthians chapter 15, those first few verses, because we're going to be looking over the next few weeks at this extraordinary chapter of 1 Corinthians, this Corinthian letter. Perhaps there is no more important chapter in the whole New Testament, or at least it, it certainly ranks up there. So we're going to take a really good look at it and today begin with those first few verses. But let's pray as we come to look at God's Word. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have uh, given us a living word, that you speak to us, and uh, not in dead letters, but by your living spirit. We pray that you would empower us and enliven us this morning as we hear it. Uh, help us to understand and help us to stand firm in the words that you speak to us. And in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I want to ask you a question by way of starting, and the question is, where do you stand? Now, to take a stand is to take a risk. But to, to take a stand is also to create possibilities. Now, this week in Hong Kong, I don't know if you've been looking at the news, they say two million people have taken a stand. Literally, they have stood in the way of the riot police, the riot police, and they've marched to protest against the Chinese government. Now, I was amazed to read that after these massive demonstrations were over, people stayed behind to clean the streets. And they said the streets have never been cleaner. They clearly do protests uh, somewhat differently in Hong Kong. There was something else that was rather different about these protests. The protesters sang a Christian song, a song that uh, I learnt growing up in youth groups back in the 1980s, and it was the song, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord. And it goes a little bit like, I'm not going to sing the whole thing, it's okay. Sing Hallelujah to the Lord, and so on. They sang it over and over, as Alicia says, in a round, in order to keep the crowds calm. And it was picked up by all the people who were in the crowds, whether they were Christians or not. But it turns out that many of the leaders of the demonstrators are Christians, and they're taking a stand, aren't they? They're standing with and for Jesus Christ. And if that means standing against the most powerful government in the world, then so be it. That is what it means for them. Taking a stand like that means taking a risk. It means taking what you think is true and good and setting it out in public. And taking a stand also means creating a possibility, at least in Hong Kong, in this case, that they won't lose the freedom that they have in that province, religious freedom being one of those freedoms. Now, throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has been trying to tell the Corinthians where they stand. What were the truths that they had accepted when they accepted Jesus Christ, when they believed in him? And what did that mean for them? And look, we've seen throughout our journey through the Corinthian letter, they weren't much good at working it out, if 
truth be told. They were a divided church. They'd become spiritually proud and arrogant. Um, They'd countenanced and allowed immorality in their midst. They'd stood not as one for Christ, but for themselves or for a particular faction in the church. And Paul has been addressing each of these problems in turn. But now he comes to tie all these things together. What was the underlying spirituality that the Corinthians said they had accepted? What was it behind, behind them that had brought them together into church in the first place? Well, it was the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have a look at how he starts chapter 15, the first few verses there. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news, or the gospel, that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which you stand, through which you also are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you've come to believe in vain. So I'm about to tell you the basics. I'm about to remind you, says Paul, of the elementary, the fundamentals, the things that brought you together in the first place. I preached to you the good news, the gospel, and you received it. And now this is where you stand. And this is how and why you are being saved, if you're still clinging on to it. And maybe that last bit where he says, unless you've come to believe in vain, expresses something of Paul's doubts in the Corinthians for their arrogance and flippancy and division and ability to overlook evil in their midst don't look a lot like standing for the gospel, do they? Was their believing merely a phase they had gone through or were they standing firm in the good news? And then Paul goes on to unpack the gospel that was preached to them, the thing they and we need to take our stand upon. And there's three things that Paul wants us to believe, three things that are of first importance, and there are three reasons to believe them, three witnesses, three pieces of testimony that back up the three things, the three claims. So first of all, the three claims. Have a look at verse 3. For I handed on to you... As of first importance, and that's a way of saying I'm underlining what I'm about to say, right? It's in bold and capitals. It's first importance. And what does he say? That which I am in turn received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried and Christ was raised. Those things are of fundamental importance to the Corinthians. Those are the gospel that Paul passed on to them. This is the story on which Christians stand. It's the story of the suffering, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the story we recited to one another just a little bit ago. And Paul says it's of first importance. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, I don't know about that stuff, but I know Jesus was a very fine man, a very fine teacher, and an extraordinary example of a life lived to God. But what was of most importance? His death, and on, his third, on the third day, his resurrection. Nothing matters more for Christianity than these things. If you don't know this, then you don't know Jesus. If your church doesn't teach these things, 
then it's not really a Christian church. And why? Why are these things so important, so vital? Because these truths turn out to be the solid anchors of our existence. They make our reality what it is. They change everything about being a human being. Christ died for our sins. This is the truth about Jesus that even Peter challenged in the middle of the gospel story. He couldn't believe it when Jesus told him that he was going to die. And yet Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and towards his cruel death, rejected by religion and politics alike. The cross of Jesus stands as a rebuff to all our self-importance and pride because it was the necessary payment for our sin. There was no other path to glory but through the cross. There is no other spirituality but a spirituality that involves the cross, that involves coming to the cross with your sins and having them forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. Our sins took him there to pay the penalty we deserved. We stand then because Christ died. We stand even as those who have sinned because he died for our sins. That's an extraordinary place to stand, isn't it? You know too well that you cannot alter the past much as you might wish to. You cannot undo what has been done. But Christ died for our sins. The past has no claim on you if you now stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and Christ was buried Now that sounds a little bit redundant, perhaps. Why does Paul say that this too was of first importance? Isn't died and resurrected enough? But that Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and buried in that stone tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea and sealed in it is a heavy physical reminder that Jesus actually and really physically died. He did not merely lapse into unconsciousness nor was his spirit taken from his body on the cross. He went into the solidity and the apparent permanence of the grave behind the heavy stone and lay there in the cold. He died and was buried. But on the third day, he was raised. The power of sin was broken by the man who died upon the cross. But on the third day, he walked free from the tomb by the power of the Holy Spirit. Death had no hold on him. Though he lay in its strong embrace, it could not grasp him for long. What Paul preached then was not some vague, waffly spiritual principle. He was no self-help guru preaching about some vague thing about death and rebirth as spring must follow winter or some rubbish like that, but was preaching the, the actual events in time of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus was raised not as a thought, not as an idea, not as a philosophy, but as the great American novelist John Updike once wrote, 
as his flesh, ours, the same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality. The Christian faith and its hope stands and falls on the truth of this one miracle against everything that death tells us, against the evidence of our eyes. He was raised on the third day. And this is where and how we stand in the true hope of the good news of forgiveness because Christ died for our sins and in the new hope of new life because of the resurrection of the body. Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ has risen. But why should we believe that he died and was buried and was raised? We should believe these three important claims because of the three great witnesses to them. Scripture, the disciples, and Paul himself. Now, we modern people like to have evidence for what we believe. Well, we think we do. To be honest, lots of people seem to believe all kinds of rubbish for which there's no evidence at all. So I don't know how we work that out. But we like to believe that we like to think that we're careful and rational people. And Paul here does help us making appeal to proof in the form of the Bible, the testimony of a large number of eyewitnesses and his own experience. These together form the basis for belief that Jesus rose from the dead. And so first of all, the Bible, the scriptures. Jesus died for sins according to the scriptures and was raised on the third day, says Paul, according to the scriptures. Well, is this just a way of saying, look, uh, the Bible tells me so, so it must be true. Now, we're in this modern era more used to a sceptical, more sceptical approach, as George Gershwin once wrote, it ain't necessarily so. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. So there's that really a very convincing way to argue. But Paul is saying something a little bit more subtle here. And by the scriptures, he means the Old Testament. The Old Testament part of the Bible, which Jews like Jesus and Paul said was the authoritative word of God. And so what he is saying is that Christ died buried and was raised, are all events that are prophesied and explained by reading that old book, the old Jewish Bible. The promises of God declared to Abraham and carried along through Moses and David come to pass in Jesus, the hoped-for Messiah, that saviour king who would release his people from their sins and restore their relationship with God. That is now accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Long ago, the prophets had spoken of the Messiah reigning forever and of the resurrection from the dead. Psalm 16, for example, says, You will not let your holy ones see decay. And yet, said Peter the Apostle in the book of Acts, sure enough, King David died. So what can the psalm have meant? According to the scriptures, the Messiah would rise from the dead. 
Now what the scriptures had spoken of had come to pass. Jesus was not just any dead rebel, but the Messiah of long ago, the one who would be God's presence with his people, the one who would save his people from their sins. The word of God is fulfilled and accomplished in him. The great uh, reformer Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, the 21st, the 20th century uh, civil rights campaigner, Martin Luther, back in the Reformation, put it this way, I feel and I see that all people must rot in the ground, but the word of God informs me differently that I shall rise in great glory and live eternally. According to the scriptures, Jesus died, was buried and rose again. But secondly, we add to that the witness of those who saw Jesus alive, which is this great second piece of evidence. And this passage is probably the earliest direct written evidence we have to the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, that it was written down tells you that people were claiming it years before and uh, reciting this formula indeed. And, and so that, this, uh, that, that the written evidence is a couple of decades after the events is evidence that there were claims, there were testimonies to Jesus rising again, uh, again from the dead well before this. And Paul is able to pull in in this text uh, an impressive number of people who say they saw the risen Jesus. Jesus appeared to Kephas or Peter and the other apostles. And then he appeared to more than 500 of the disciples at one time. And says Paul, many of those are still alive. In other words, you could check it out. You could ask them all about it. You could speak to them. He's putting it on the line there, of course. He's, he's saying that those 500 people would still to this day say that Jesus had risen from the dead and that they had seen him alive. And Paul too mentions those who have died, and many we know went to their deaths for the belief, standing in the belief that Jesus had risen. I guess it would be pretty hard to dupe a crowd that size, and especially not over those many years. There is no evidence of any one of those people deciding to back down from what they had seen in all that time. If you could dupe a crowd for an afternoon, could you really uh, keep them keep them bluffed for their entire lifetime such that they would go to their deaths believing it. And that brings us, brings us to the last witness, Paul himself. And that's from verses 8 to 11 in our text. And what he says about meeting Jesus is bound up, of course, with a complete change that occurred in his life. You remember he was the one who persecuted Christians. He says, I was unfit to be called an apostle. I really was the worst of sinners, which he says in another place. But this worst of sinners, this murderous thug, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. For Paul, this was the moment that he experienced profoundly the grace and mercy of God. And as he says here in this marvelous little expression, for by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He knew in himself now the forgiveness of sins, the mercy of God, and he knew in himself the new life that comes, comes through the resurrected Jesus. It was despite of who Paul was that he came across the grace of God in Jesus. And now he can say, I've taken that grace of God and I've preached it across the world through thick and thin. I've risked everything for the possibility that you Corinthians would know this wonderful grace too. And this is now 
where I stand. So where do you stand? You know that song I mentioned before, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord, the song the protesters sang in in Hong Kong? I did see a sign which said, uh, give in to our demands or we will sing. This sounds like a threat, doesn't it? The second verse of that song is, Jesus has died to set us free. Jesus has died to set us free. And it's third verse. Jesus has risen from the dead. That is why you sing hallelujah to the Lord. Because Jesus has died to set us free and Jesus has risen from the dead. If you believe this good news, you stand with Paul as one who knows Christ was di- has died, was buried, and has been, re- has been risen. You believe the testimony of the Bible, the many witnesses that we heard about, and you believe the testimony of Paul himself. And with Paul, you know the realities of forgiveness and new life. You know it is by grace that you are who you are. If you take that stand, you are taking a risk. You are pushing against nihilism. You are pushing against materialism and secularism. And you're pushing against the individualism that's all around us. But as with the protesters in Hong Kong and as with Paul, you're also creating a new, hopeful life for yourself, for your family and for your community. You are brought here to worship Jesus as Lord by the power of God's Spirit. And if you stand because of the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body, then you can stand in a place of extraordinary possibility. You can pray to a God who not only called worlds into being out of nothing, who said in the midst of the darkness, let there be light, and there was light, but called a dead man out of the tomb that Easter day. And if the resurrection of Jesus is the place you stand, then you stand with the God who will one day transform your body, decaying though it is, so that it will be like Christ's glorious body, And if this is where you stand, then nothing you do in his name will be in vain. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.